0: Right now you are down and out, and feeling really crappy. I'll see. And when I see how sad you are, it sort of makes me happy. Happy.
1: Sorry, Nikki. human nature, nothing I can do. Very nice,
2: Gary. I didn't say it was nice, but everybody does it.
0: Do ever clap when a waitress falls?
2: Yes, we are to devoting to today's glasses. show to the emotion, the, the mental condition. I'm not even sure exactly what to call, what category Schadenfreude fits into. But we're devoting our show today, anyway, to Schadenfreude. Before we begin, uh, just one or two quick trips into my own past. So, as a lot of you know, for Sixteen years, I guess. I was on a commercial radio station in which I was sort of the House liberal. There, You know, it was a very conservative kind of programming and yeah, like Rush Limbaugh's show was on that station. But because I was sort of mirthful, people kind of put up with me, but they also were really offended by me. I mean, the listeners a lot of them. <laughs> and ordinarily, that's not a good employment model to be, you know, the host of a drive-time radio show where a lot of the listeners hate you. That doesn't really work that well. And eventually, after 16 years, he caught up with me and I got fired. And... Um, or dropped. Uh, and so there were a lot of newspaper stories about it. And of course, you know, th- this is in 2008 when every newspaper story had like lots of comments on it. And, you know, you kind of want to read the comments. And of course, there were just people just rejoicing, just rejoicing uh, in, in my demise. I mean, it was really giving them a lot of pleasure. And they wanted to take this one last opportunity to talk about how arrogant I was, that was a particularly <laughs> prevalent term. And, you know, I don't know. I mean it was, wasn't was pleasant and I already – I mean getting fired sucks anyway and I had to go home and tell my son, you know. Uh, I got fired right around Christmas too because that's the way they do things <laughs> in commercial radio. And reading those things, it was hard, you know. I mean a lot of people said nice things too and – nice things that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. But I, I think even then I could process by just thinking, yeah, here it comes because it has to, right? It has to. Schadenfreude is just kind of part of the, the bargain. It's, it's priced in. It's baked into human transactions. And I had been the kind of person who would eventually excite that kind of schadenfreude and I should live with it. And I think I kind of did. Um, I'm not bitter now anyway. I hope that comes across. So, we're going to talk about that, uh, all of those things. Uh we're going to start with uh Dr. John Portman, a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, whose 2000 book, When Bad Things Happen to Other People, explores the moral and philosophical implications of Schadenfreude. Uh welcome to our show, John Portman. Thank you, Colin. I'm really pleased to be here. So let's start here. Let's start with, first of all, your book is marvelous, and it, it really does kind of explore this very complicated question uh, through the work of Freud and Kant and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Um, but let's start with Dostoevsky, because I think he kind of nails it, you know. Uh, he describes it as that strange feeling of inner satisfaction, which always can be observed, even in those who are near and dear, when a sudden disaster befalls their neighbor and which is to be found in all men without exception, however sincere their feelings of sympathy and commiseration. So Dostoevsky, John, is saying, this is kind of a universal sentence uh, visited upon us. We're incapable almost of not experiencing schadenfreude, even over the misfortune of someone who might be near and dear to us. So comment on that.
0: So, um... what we're talking about here is what we expect from our friends um you led off with a really interesting story and you delivered what is maybe a classic redemption story you were flying high and then you weren't and some people around you uh celebrated um and You probably, after falling, wanted a shoulder to cry on, you wanted a friend to tell you everything's gonna be okay, Colin, you're still great. And I know that I um, rely on friends. Um, I want them to respond in a particular way. Basically, I want them to support me. Um, Sometimes I want them to tell me whatever it is I wanna hear, but most of the time I remember that a good friend is also gonna be occasionally critical. And so what do we expect from um, the friends that we choose, the friends that we keep on our phone, our call list, uh, our Facebook page, whatever? Um, And what kind of people do we want to be? Do we want to be nasty, vile people that nobody else probably wants to invite to a party or hang out with? Or do we want to be really good people that others will applaud and celebrate? And so I think going out on a limb here, generally speaking, most of us want to be the kind of person who's going to support Colin, maybe perhaps point out a little bit of arrogance in the past but um, insist on the possibility that you can change, you can get better and that people will like you more and you'll never get fired again. Um, So I know that I want to be that kind of a person. I want to be really kind, um, but I know that deep down inside, I get these feelings and I can't really control them. And for a long time, those feelings uh, sort of tortured me. But uh, I just learned how to sort of um, stop feeling guilty and just get on with life and accept the fact that, um, uh, as Gore Vidal once said, it's not enough to succeed Um, Others must fail. If everybody's (laughs) winning in America, then you're not actually going to be happy. You need to see other people not winning, failing. And that seems to be what Dostoevsky was getting at here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we can have our wiring can include these beautiful little pink and blue and purple um, wires of of nurturing and empathy and that, those kinds of emotions. But I think Dostoevsky is saying somewhere in there, even, you know, even in a pretty benign set of circumstances, there's a little dark greenish black wire that you're just never going to get rid of. Um, and, and so one of the things that you do is to kind of explore the subtypes of schadenfreude. I mean, it really is kind of the Baskin-Robbins of emotion It comes in many flavors I would at minimum divide it up – you divide it up and look at – with a lot of complexity at a lot of different types. At minimum, I think there's three. One of them is that kind of almost karmic pleasure of seeing someone, quote, get what's coming to them, this kind of sense that this person was a perpetrator of injustice. This now is a kind of cosmic justice visited upon the uh, the person. Therefore, let us be happy. Uh, number two would be kind of a leveling sense driven by envy. It's you know someone whose good fortune has exceeded one's own. Uh, and that person is brought down, uh, maybe lower to or below the circumstances of I, the um, of me, the observer. Uh, and then the the last one I think is that Dostoevsky one, the pure Schadenfreude, in which really anybody's misfortune is at some level, kind of, some kind of little inkling of good news. So, I don't know, I mean, you you might divide things up a little bit differently, but you, you do divide it up to look at those kinds of things, right? Are we seeing, for example, justice, karmic justice, when something bad happens and we're happy?
0: Yes, yes. And part of what makes this emotional reaction so fascinating uh, is that it's evaluative. Um, it relies on what we consider to be justice. And what we consider to be justice doesn't always line up with the opinion of the person standing beside us. And that's why, to me, the emotion is um, so fascinating, uh, but also so slippery. So it's kind of crazy when you stop and realize how different your views are from those of other Americans. Um, Sometimes um, Democrats and Republicans uh, argue uh, vociferously with one another. I think we're all Pretty much familiar with that. Uh, other times, we see um, this kind of struggle to make sense of what people deserve on a on a global scale. There's so many so many different uh, reactions. You are yourself something of a celebrity there, um, but I'm thinking of the Olympics last month and the uh, Russian skater Kamila Velcilieva. Um She uh, is, in my humble opinion, truly extraordinary. I mean. I can't believe what she can do, and we all heard in America. I think we heard throughout the world that she wasn't going to be allowed to skate because she was caught cheating. She had taken a banned substance, and then you know, we, back and forth, back and forth. Every day there was such drama. Finally, she was allowed to compete um, over the objections of so many people in the international community, and then we all saw what happened when she went out on the on the ice. Um, Russia very much in the news now. She was representing Russia. Something really truly horrible happened to her. Um, perhaps, Colin, you'll think you'll, you'll you'll agree that it what happened to her was worse than what happened to you. I think we'll come back to this later in the in the um in the segment. How it is that we judge suffering, what's really important and what's not important. She um was skating in front of the world, and yeah, things went very, very badly for her. And um, some people felt wonderful about that because they thought justice had been done. You know, she cheated, supposedly, um, and she failed. And the country that she represented, perhaps, um, was humiliated. Um, But then, interestingly, um, the international opinion shifted later, and people remembered this is only a kid. She's only 15 years old and she's probably not sophisticated enough to take these banned substances on her own and get away with it for so long. She probably had someone helping her, maybe a whole team of people helping her. And maybe those people never even told her what they were putting in her, you know, vitamin shakes, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so much going on. Um, What people deserve, what suffering is, Okay, to laugh at what suffering is so horrible and so bad that only a truly vicious person, maybe a psychopath, would uh, would laugh at. And again, it comes back to the kind of person that that you, Colin, wants to have, that I want to have, or that Camilla Veslieva wants to have when her entire world fell apart, with you know millions of people around the globe watching.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're encountering this. First of all, it's absolutely the case that we need to be better in making distinctions between wanting just, – just put it in a fairly – unsophisticated way, bad things to happen to Russia as opposed to bad things happening to Russians. And certainly to extend that, when I saw that the Russian Paralympic team had been sent home, I'm, I thought it was like kind of a horrible thing. My God, they have nothing to do <laughs> with the incursion into, into Ukraine. But but let's, let's look at another thing a little bit closer to home, and that is what we've been through recently is uh, an enormous debate o- over COVID-19 and the reliable and prudent precautions to take about it. And one thing that we've seen is the deaths of um, a number, I mean, I think about eight semi-prominent conservative talk show hosts or conservative Christian talk show hosts have died of COVID after having spent a lot of time inveighing uh, against masks and vaccines and maybe even denying the existence of COVID as it's medically described. Uh, This also has happened to some anti-mask advocates, activists, uh, and, and so here's there's an interesting question, right? You feel as though these people have actually made the world more dangerous than it needed to be by discouraging, you know, maybe thousands of other people from getting vaccinated. They've put not just themselves and their families in harm's way, but maybe everybody in harm's way. Uh, and and so. There is a temptation, I think, to experience some Schadenfreude. Ha! You thought you knew what was happening. You thought you had the right answer, and now you're dying of the very disease that you advocated against preventing. Um, and and I wrestle with this inside myself because I ultimately don't want to be that person. And and I think there is a better way of looking at it. But but wow, there's one you know where it it, it, it there's a real sort of instant limbic system, snake like desire uh, <clears throat> to, to bite that person.
0: Right, exactly. And so here we have this um, this sort of evaluation built into the emotional response. Um, if you are someone who denied that COVID even exists, you know, it's just basically another form of the flu, then um, you perhaps will be judged very differently from someone who um, through no fault of his or her own, I mean, nobody deserves to get sick, but somebody who who got vaccinated, double vaccinated, maybe triple vaccinated, um, came down with COVID, uh, somebody like Queen Elizabeth, for example, the public reaction or just the reaction of your friends, uh, the reaction from your community is going to be very different because um, back to the arrogance that you talked about at the very beginning uh, before you were canceled, Um, If you think that you know more than the scientists who are warning everyone daily about the dangers of COVID uh, and you don't get vaccinated or you don't wear a mask, then chances are people are going to respond to you less sympathetically than if you did everything in your power and you came out with covid
2: Anyway, so the the fairly well known Jesuit theologian uh, James Martin wrote about this in the New York Times op-ed page, and he he said, "Don't do it." That kind of Schadenfreude is wrong. And he said, "I could invoke a lot of theologically sophisticated terms, or you know, various well known Catholic thinkers, or or whatever." But the truth is, I'm just going to use a simple word. It's mean. It's mean. It's mean to, to to have that attitude towards people who died. And and one thing that I've been thinking a lot about John is the fact that most of these people. They're sort of the products of their environment, and their environment have guided them to, I mean, particularly the rank-and-file anti-vaxxer. I mean, they, they don't choose this. You know, they, they're they in an environment where they, they wind up coming to this conclusion based on all kinds of stimuli that, that they're not in control of, and sort of wish them dead or to rejoice to experience schadenfreude in their demise or the fact that they were really, really sick for three weeks or something. It, it does feel morally wrong. This is one of the questions that you are exploring in this book. Is it Is it it morally wrong to do it? Is there any way we can let ourselves off the hook for it? So maybe you could say a little bit more about that.
0: Sure, that's well put. Um, I still think and you may disagree that most of us really do want to be good people. We want to be kind and we want to be known as, you know, excellent people to be around. And yes, um, James Martin has a point. Um, It just looks nasty and, and maybe even tacky to laugh when other people suffer. But um, then you have to ask, well, are you really laughing at the fact that someone like, say, for example, Donald Trump, a human being, an individual, came down with COVID, which is a truly terrible sickness? Or are you taking joy in the fact that what he represented has been undone, has been proven wrong? When this 15-year-old Russian skater falls repeatedly on the ice, Are you laughing at her, a little girl, or are you laughing at the enormous corrupt machinery, perhaps, I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument that it is um, a corrupt machinery that that was responsible for for her doping. Are you you taking pleasure in the fact that that kind of corruption has been exposed and been called out, and that um, she was initially at least sanctioned, Um, So so what we're we're talking about is, um, again, what kind of people we are and whether we're laughing at a person or we're laughing at what we take that person to represent. And if it's the latter, then there's no need for us to consider ourselves mean people or nasty people. I mean, we we are brought up to think that good people deserve to succeed and bad people. Uh, deserve to be punished. And we know that when criminals, uh, be they thieves or rapists or dictators, when they are brought to justice, maybe in a court of law, maybe on a, telephone, uh, uh, a radio program such as your own, that it's okay to take joy in the fact that goodness has prevailed, that people who cheated or stepped out of the lines were caught and were called on it, um, now have to face up to the fact that they did something wrong. So um, all this is to say is, I I think it's a little simplistic to just stop right there and say that anybody who feels really good when a person they consider bad is diagnosed with COVID. is, is a nasty person. I'm not sure that that's actually straightforwardly the case because again, it's um, it's really good, isn't it? To have passions in life, to be really particular about the way that government is handled. Um, I'm talking about Democrats versus Republicans. And so it's only natural after a certain point to think that the people who disagree with you are bad, they're wrong, that's not necessarily the case, but many people think that way and that when people who disagree with you suffer for some reason, that you, you and your view have, have somehow prevailed and that your side is won. So again, um, envy, anger, malice, these are, these are bad emotions. Bad people are associated with them. But justice um, is a good emotion. And caring about justice and wanting to see justice done is something that we associate with kind, good people. And the question then becomes: How far are we allowed to go in our commitment to justice? Are we allowed to take pleasure in the fact that people who denied, scientists who insisted that COVID is something to take seriously, came down with COVID, um, had to had to swallow a really bitter pill?
2: Right, and and well, so. I think we're we're going to take a break here. We're talking to John Portman. His book is When Bad Things Happen to Other People. It's a book about schadenfreude. We're going to add another guest here and and maybe kind of explore situations in which it's almost safe to experience schadenfreude, even if we regard it as an unworthy emotion in our public lives. All right, here we go. Let's take that break. Oh, a little chumbawumba to lift your spirits. Yeah, we all get knocked down. Uh, and sometimes it's very amusing uh, to other people when we get knocked down a music does when other people get knocked down. And sometimes that happens kind of metaphorically or symbolically. Sometimes it happens literally and physically. We're going to talk about all of that here uh, with Lauren Ober, uh, who hosted the Spectacular Failures podcast, which during its 22-episode run looked at the demise of businesses large and small. Uh, and she's also a big fan of fail videos. I hope we'll have time to talk about those. Still with us, John Portman, professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and the author of When Bad Things Happen to Other People. So, John, in in your book, near the end, you get into this whole idea of outlaw emotions, a term coined I think by Alison Jagar. Um, this idea of there's certain emotions that, you know, Father James Martin writes an op-ed in the New York Times saying, just don't do this. Don't do this kind of schadenfreude. Stop it. <laughs> don't. It's mean. Uh, and, and so you think, well, maybe I should. On the other hand, it seems as though As you write, denying an emotion, refusing to have a thought that you really do have, deprives you of all kinds of opportunities for self-reflection, learning, understanding. Just pretending you don't have the thought seems like it accomplishes very little. And it does seem as though there are these kind of public spectacles, like most of reality television, for example, that kind of allow us to do that. But let's go all the way back to 1995. Cat, we're going to play A1. A1. you may recall that in 1995, the actor Hugh Grant was caught uh, in a sting with a sex worker, uh, and he decided to go on The Tonight Show to talk about it.
0: Let me start with question number one. <laughs> what the hell were you
1: thinking? No, I don't say that to be clear, but I think among most people going,
2: what? Yeah. Yeah. Um well it's uh, it's uh, it's not easy. Um <laughs> You know I, I the thing is um I I people give me tons of um ideas on this one. I keep reading new you know psychological theories and stuff like that. that um <laughs> You know I was under pressure or I was uh, overtired or I was uh, lonely or I, I fell down the stairs when I was a child or whatever. I am. <laughs> but I um uh, you know I I think it would that would be uh, bollocks, really, to, to hide behind a, right. uh, something like that. You know, you, I think you know in life uh, pretty much what's a good thing to do and what's a, b- a bad thing. And um, I did a bad thing, and there you have it. But, well, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, that's... What has... Okay, so, um, John, really quickly, because I want to be able to make sure uh, that we have a chance to talk to our other guest about this kind of thing, too. But this seems to be, like, sort of a safe environment right sitting home watching the tonight show and part of the privacy of my house if i'm taking a little bit of joy uh in hugh grant's cringing uh cringing misery uh, am i actually doing any kind of moral harm mm, i'm not hearing john right now so i'm actually gonna uh, switch over oh oh there you are um yep. Yep. Yeah, so yep, maybe maybe not. reflect about that. Do, do do we sort of create safe situations uh, in which to experience Schadenfreude since it's kind of waiting to bubble up out of us anyway?
0: Well, um no, I don't think that we commit moral harm. Um in part because Hugh Grant basically agreed with us that he had made a mistake. Um so again, going back to your um intro which was um so interesting and so useful Um, you said that you were an arrogant person and that maybe some people thought well finally Collins learned his lesson now that he's been cancelled so uh, what Hugh Grant basically did was say you know I made a mistake Um, I'm not going to deny that and he was able to laugh at himself Um, I myself just I found it very interesting excuse me that you chose that clip because if I'm not mistaken Jay Leno's career was not going well. And it was that interview, he got the idea somehow to just call Hugh Grant and ask him, would you come on my show tomorrow night? So everybody in America was aware that Hugh Grant had been caught with a prostitute, and prostitution was illegal in California. And um, that interview went really well for Hugh Grant, but also for Jay Leno. So Jay Leno profited from Hugh Grant's misfortune in a really interesting way. They both that, ended up doing really well. That is, that, that is
2: really interesting. So I want to just quickly uh, change the field over to to Lauren here. Uh, Lauren, over for people who haven't heard the, Spectaculars, the Spectacular Failures podcast, explain what it was.
1: Well, thanks for uh having me on to talk about this. It's it's been a really interesting conversation that you all have been having so far. So, you know, Spectacular Failures was a narrative business show um about big business collapse. Um and I think it 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 did really well and it struck a nerve with people because you know, these are giant corporations that we know about, uh Kodak or Forever 21 and sort of understanding why they fell apart um was was interesting. I mean, especially when there was, you know, sort of dirty business and nefarious things going on. Um, but I think that, you know, we we, we love a little comeuppance. And, uh, you know, we tried to have fun with the stories. I mean, not laughing at anyone's expense, um, but, but sort of telling the, the truth of how things fell apart.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and Lauren, I, I think there are, for example, you do a thing on, on Broadway failures, um, you know, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark or whatever the hell it was called. I can't even remember the subtitle anymore. There was something just so ludicrous about the whole thing that, I mean, obviously it got really bad. People were getting really hurt, physically injured, you know, but they were breaking like both wrists at the same time doing some kind of onstage stunt. But there was something about the composite of it too, right? The Just the magnitude uh, of the failure that, that you just couldn't. You couldn't fail to either laugh at it or at least take some kind of pleasure. Me is it like the overweeningness of some of this, the the way that it would, it's something that struts on the stage so much and then falls? I guess that's sort of part of the fun, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, at least for me or the things that interest me, it's sort of um, it's a juxtaposition or, you know, I think of there there are a couple of forms of schadenfreude for me. And I think you touched on a couple of them. But, you know, the one is, you know, we do we do like the 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 comeuppance of the arrogant. Um, and uh, I mean, I, you know, the way I feel is as long as 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 nobody is really getting hurt, it's OK to sort of take a little bit of pleasure. Um, in this but yeah, I think I think the the <laughs> Spider Man was a good example or the, the musical version because it seems so outlandish. Although if it would have succeeded, we would have all been, you know, like starstruck and we would have thought, Oh, this is so amazing. how could they pulled it off?
2: I would have been pushing you into forty second street so I could get ahead of you in the ticket line. Right. It was so <laughs> exactly. So with that in mind, and you said as long as nobody gets hurt. So let me make a confession to you. I can share this with you because I know that you like fail videos. Please. Uh, I was a my son and I used to really enjoy watching Tosh.0, uh which a TV show which if, if for people mm-hmm. who know it it, it almost entirely <laughs> consisted of people on little motorbikes running into trampolines and just practically decapitating themselves you know and there's just no earthly moral justification for watching these things and he was very good at commenting on them too you know um I don't know I I think about that and I just wonder because I think of myself as essentially a pretty nice person, I find myself wondering what's going on there. I don't know. Do you have any
1: theories? Well, you know, I I was moderately embarrassed uh, during the intro you gave me that I was a fan of fail videos. So I feel like I've been outed um, (laughs) as a person who, you know, uh, likes to watch those. But I feel for me personally, I feel like because I've had so many fumbles and foibles and, you know, I've fallen and slipped and I've done all of these kind of ridiculous things. And just thank God there was no video camera there to catch it. But there's, there's, uh, there's a way in which you're, you know, it, it it is, it's an equalizing effect. It's like a humanizing effect. It's like, Oh, you know, I, I got you girl. Like I see when you fell, you know, I mean, as long as again, like nobody gets hurt, but um, I think also, you know, like, I um, I love I love watching uh, videos of models teetering over on a runway, um, <laughs> Absolutely. which I know sounds so cruel. It has nothing to do with the models, but it's the juxtaposition of high fashion, exactly. ludicrous footwear. And then the- Lauren Ober, these...
2: I'm going to have to go. I'm certainly because reasons are beyond my control. This, this whole segment has to wrap here. So, Lauren Ober hosted the Spectacular Failures podcast. John Portman's been with us too, author of When Bad Things Happen to Other People. It's hard to talk about Schadenfreude without thinking about comedy. Uh, and sometimes the Schadenfreude in comedy happens in, in a fairly subliminal or at least unstated way. And sometimes, uh, as would be the case with The Simpsons, uh, it's consciously discussed. Listen here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, Flanders' store was deserted. So, what do you think of your bestest buddy no, Mark? Mm.
3: Dad,
0: do you know what schadenfreude is? No, I do not know what schadenfreude is. Please tell me because I'm dying to know.
3: It's a German term for shameful joy, taking
0: pleasure in the suffering of others. Oh, come on, Lisa. I'm just glad to see him fall flat on his butt. He's usually all happy and comfortable and surrounded by loved ones. And it makes me feel... What's the opposite of that shameful joy thing of yours?
3: Sour grapes.
0: Boy, those Germans have a word for everything.
2: So here to explore this with us is Scott Dickers, a founding editor of The Onion and uh, author of How to Write Funny uh, and other books about humor writing. Well, first of all, um, maybe, Scott, you could react a little bit to what we've just heard. Usually, if schadenfreude is going to be a component of comedy, people don't use the word schadenfreude.
3: No, but, you know, on The Simpsons, you can always count on a layered joke that can appeal to the dumbest person in the audience and the smartest person in the audience. And they always do a good job.
2: And, and what's interesting uh, about the clip, too, is they're exploring, in particular, Homer's objections, not to some wrong committed against him, some injury perpetrated against him by Ned Flanders, but Ned Flanders' ordinary resting state of happiness, uh, supported by his family, secure in his faith. Uh, and and that's what's really bothering Homer, right? The, 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 all of that. And so he's thrilled to see this little element of failure. I guess one question I w- would have is, is that intrinsically funny or did they make it funny with that kind of meta-narrative they're doing?
3: Well, they, you know, they layer on a lot of humor tools there. We could really get into the weeds analyzing that, but the it's obviously the schadenfreude is funny on its own that Homer would be delighted that Ned Flanders is having problems, but it's also funny that he resents when he's happy. So he kind of runs the gamut with Ned Flanders. And if you have characters that contrast as well as Ned Flanders and Homer Simpson, that's going to work because you've got great irony built into that and kind of how it works in real life. Obviously, if you don't like someone, you're going to you're going to be extra happy if if they're having some misfortune that you can laugh at behind their
2: back. Right. Schadenfreude is clearly on on a sliding scale. Uh, There are times where we see it as a form of uh, kind of karmic adjustment. You know, if something uh, if Jared Kushner loses a lot of money or something, that's probably going to make me happy, not because I need. Somebody to lose a lot of money, but I I might sort of need Jared Kushner to lose a lot of money.
3: So yeah, some like remember Pharma Bro, like you know yeah. the whole world was delighted when when he was in trouble. You know, yeah, certain people deserve it, and we delight in that.
2: But there's also that idea of just anybody's happiness being interfered with. And, I, you know, I mean, it would be interesting to talk about the sort of the balance skills of comedy. Um, Mel Brooks said, I think maybe in character as the 2,000-year-old man, but don't hold me to it, um, that comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. Uh, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Um, and there's a little bit of that, right? There's a, there, this can yeah. be explored also in at a deeply psychological level, but there's a way in which as we're watching bad things happen to the three stooges, sometimes perpetrated by other members of the three stooges, we're laughing because it's not happening to us.
3: Yeah. And we can feel good about laughing at someone else's misfortune in that context, because we know it's fake. We know no one's really getting hurt. It turns a little darker when we're laughing at our friend or, you know, our neighbor who's having some terrible misfortune. It's the same exact comedic principle, but obviously, uh, you know, a much safer environment to be laughing at fake characters getting bonked on the head.
2: Yeah, maybe even, you know, arguably a, a healthy reaction if we're watching Peter Sellers as the Pink Panther and Cato's attacking him or whatever. We we know that's not real pain. We know it's not physical harm that's actually happening, at least to Peter Sellers uh, at that moment. That's,
3: yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And that's one of the ways that comedy serves a, a good function in society. That is an outlet that we need, a little steam valve for us to let out our schadenfreude in a safe way. And so maybe in our real lives, we have more emotional energy to actually have sympathy or empathy, you know, or reach out to help someone who's in trouble.
2: That would be the ideal course that things would
3: take. For the most emotionally healthy person, yes. So I'm talking about 0.01% of the population.
2: Right. There's that famous Charles Adams cartoon, which is entirely just uh, a drawing of a movie audience all of whose members are weeping, except that there's one ghoulish Charles Adams guy who's kind of laughing, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah, else yeah. is making everybody cry. And, and you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the person who, who carries over from the Three Stooges to real life. But I think also, and here I will get a little bit NPR, nerdy geeky, and say, you know, Montaigne would say that what we're doing really is exploring our own vulnerability. What what we're really thinking of is, yes, somebody could hit me in the head with a hammer. It would really hurt a lot. Um, So I'm I'm laughing maybe partly out of relief that it's happening to Mo or or to Inspector Clouseau.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's another service that comedy provides. You know, it's all about the universality of the experience, you know, Comedy allows us to laugh at s- such a range of human foibles, you know. Schadenfreude, to me, it works in comedy as do so many other character interactions. But yeah, the difference for me is in real life when you're actually rooting for someone's failure, you know, or cheering so- someone's misfortune. That that's only funny when you're when it's fake,
2: right? I, but it's also interesting because there's a kind of startle uh reflex that's going on in that fake environment and i'll give you another example so i don't know in what context but tina fey said if you want to make an audience laugh dress a man up as an old lady and then push him down the stairs. If you want to make a bunch of comedy writers laugh, just push an old lady downstairs. Uh, and and <laughs> there's kind of that sense that what we're doing also when we're laughing in either one of those scenarios uh, is we're startled. We're startled. Uh, we have essentially two choices, to react in horror or to react, react in laughter. So in a way, I mean, we're, we're doing the laughter because we know it's not real, I guess.
3: Yeah, comedy writers and comedy people are very dark people. They they live in a dark place all the time because so much of comedy is sourced from tragedy. So that's why the real old lady is going to make an actual <laughs> comedy writer or comedy professional laugh. But regular people aren't steeped in that all the time. They're just living their lives. So, yeah, a man falling down the stairs is so much safer. That, that Tina Fey quote makes total sense to me.
2: Right. But I mean, it also, yeah, as you say, and I think... I think it's in the Eddie Murphy episode of Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, whatever the hell it's called, um, where I think it's Seinfeld who says to Murphy, what people don't understand is we think everything's funny. We think everything is at least fair game for comedy. Uh, And and a lot of being a professional comedian is negotiating or navigating between that and what the audience market will bear. You know, that, yeah, 10 minutes after Fukushima, that's just really not funny to a lot of people. It might be you know, potentially funny to a certain kind of comedian.
3: Yeah. For the comedy writer, there's a Venn diagram. You know, there's the circle that's all the things you think are funny, which is a lot of really horrible tragedy that you could never say in mixed company. And the other circle is what regular audiences find funny. And that little, you know, sliver where the two circles overlap is pretty small. And so comedians spend many, many years like on the road, trying out their jokes and fine tuning their jokes just to figure out how to get there. So, yeah, he's right. Like we comedy, comedy people often just don't even know where that is until they test it.
2: Right. And there's there I mean, the phrase too soon becomes uh, both, uh, you know, a, a shorthand way of talking about that and also its own kind of laugh. You you tell the transgressive joke that's really too close to the bone about some horrible misfortune and then you say too soon. Uh, exactly.
3: And it's kind of a badge of honor among comedians to try to be out of the gate first and to be able to do the too soon joke sooner than everyone else, because if it's clever enough and if the target is right, you can do it immediately. You know, Steve Allen said comedy equals tragedy plus time, but it's really comedy equals tragedy. So you can do a joke about anything at any time. It's just a matter of couching it properly, making it palatable to the audience and making sure it's universal, relatable. You know, sometimes like when you said there's a a tragedy that happens, people are in their fear brains. So they're in their dinosaur brain and they can't laugh. They literally don't have access to their higher brain functions where laughter is. And so when you can make someone laugh, as soon as you can do it, the better, because that pulls them out of the fear stage, out of the, the reptile brain and into their human brain. It's like part of the healing process another very important service that comedy provides
2: I, I feel like since you just said all that we have to talk about this kind of moment in the history of The Onion. It's covered in Dan Taberski's amazing uh, documentary nine twelve 12 uh, uh, As I recall, what he says at the time is that The Onion, I think it just moved offices to New York uh, and nine eleven happened. And uh, obviously the entire comedy world was asking itself different versions of the same question. I mean, famously in Lauren Michaels' words, when can we be funny again? But you guys were really in that situation where you and your audience were in a fear brain state uh, and in a traumatized state. Uh, maybe that you can I don't even you whether you were still with The Onion at that point, but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. That seems to be sort of the ultimate challenge, that particular moment.
3: Yes, it was. And The Onion waited two weeks. We had just moved our office to New York and got settled in. And 9-11 happened, you know, a few blocks down. and that's you know we had done this book our dumb century which is a look back at the 20th century through the pages of the onion and we learned in making fun of events throughout the 20th century like the titanic all the way up to the the oklahoma federal building bombing and we kind of learned like what the appropriate distance is and how you have to go after the right target in order to make jokes palatable and for things to still be funny because you know one of the best times and places to laugh is in a classroom or in a funeral when you're not supposed to laugh. So in a way it's almost like the perfect environment when you have a tragedy and we know as satirists that the job of comedy is to help people heal. So if if the onion would have made a bunch of jokes about I don't know, you know, making fun of the victims, making fun of the buildings that got torn down, like one of the jokes that got pulled that we didn't run was something about Quadragon officials uh, saying that the attacks are are over, so that's making fun of the victims. It's making fun of the Pentagon being destroyed. So in going after the right targets, so the Onion goes after the terrorists. You know, it goes after these relatable feelings that people are having, and so on and so forth. That allows the jokes to land it allows people to connect with them and it allows for that healing to take place
2: right and i think one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is talking about comedy as a monolith you know where this is the way that comedy works these are some of the aspects of human nature that are priced into comedy and the truth is you know, that's what the onion had to figure. I mean, Anthony Jeselnik would just start telling stories, telling jokes about people jumping off the building. I mean, he wouldn't wait 10 minutes because he has some kind of other covenant with his prospective audience. I don't even understand what that covenant is. Uh, I don't know why he would tell some of the jokes that he tells. But there, are, there is that kind of comedian, right, who's, 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 who says, I am going to bypass all of your civilized instincts. And I mean, I, I could give a, I could give it a solid example, but it's so horrifying. I don't think I'm going to do it. But but Jeslick will say, I, I am going to now make a joke about something that you think I cannot make a joke about because it's so horrible and so tragic. And, and I don't even understand what the next sentence is after that. Like, and, and so here's why it's going to work. I, I don't know how that works at all.
3: Well, a lot of it has to do with brand. So here's the secret to comedy. People don't laugh at things that are funny. They laugh at things that they have given themselves permission to laugh at. So if they know a comedy brand, for example, Anthony Jesselman, they know that comedian, they know his brand of comedy, they like it. They have given him permission to be funny. So, and they know that part of that brand is he's going to be pushing the boundaries and he's going to be doing stuff that's on the edge and too soon and everything else. In a way, the onion has that same reputation, like an equal opportunity offender, unafraid to upset people, and so on and so forth. If, you know, a really family-friendly friend friendly comedian like Louis Anderson or Jeff Foxworthy had gone out and done the same jokes, it probably wouldn't have worked.
2: Right. And I think other there's another kind of comedian who can do this at the level of ab- abstraction. Well, I mean, Stephen Wright, who does everything at the level of abstraction, can say... If at first you don't succeed, don't take up skydiving. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's funny because it's not—it's an abstract thing. It's not about a specific person dying in a parachuting accident. accident so that's another part of it. Exactly. So before we run out of time, Scott, I want to just get you a little bit into your role as teacher because you have aspirational comedy writers and comedians coming to you. They have to figure out, you know, whether they can put a rock inside the snowball. Um, I, I don't know how do you talk to them about the kinds of questions you and i have just been talking about
3: well they're on a couple of different levels so in the creation of comedy i'm all about like subtext every joke has subtext what are you really saying that's not in your literal joke and that subtext has to be a really interesting astute opinion that's going to make the audience go hmm and then it has to be delivered like you say a rock and a snowball it has to be delivered couched in a spoonful of jelly, which is all the funny jokes. And there's 11 different ways to make subtext funny. There's only 11 different kinds of jokes. (laughs) And a professional comedian knows how to use those. They come naturally to that person. When you're teaching someone comedy, you have to teach them those 11 filters, how to use them, and they can make any subtext funny. Then on the other level, in just their lives, in trying to succeed in the comedy business, for example. I teach them about this concept mudita, which is an Indian word that's kind of the opposite of schadenfreude. It means taking pleasure in someone else's success. So if you wanna succeed in comedy, you have to have really high EQ. And when a competitor or a peer or a colleague gets a Netflix special or you know, get signs a TV show, you need to be happy for them and you need to email them and say, oh my God, God I'm so glad You got this gig. That's so great. That's the currency of the entertainment business. And it's how people rise up in it by being that much of a a good person. If you're taking pleasure in people's failures, you're going to, you're going to fail fast and you're never going to rise up in the industry. So like we were talking about before, it really is a difference between the, the comedy creation world and the jokes and the abstract. Versus the real and how you act in real life. The two are completely di- you want to be completely different. You want to be explore all the schadenfreude you want and laugh at people's misfortune, especially people in positions of power. It's always fun. But in real life, the opposite: be a good person, celebrate those who succeed. And have empathy for people who are having a hard time. Reach out to them and help them because it's probably going to come back to you.
2: So that allows us to kind of come to a close and to just emphasize the fact that uh, Tina Fey doesn't really enjoy pushing old ladies downstairs. She just she thinks that she and her writers would think that was sort of funny, Uh, which is very, very different from having any kind of affinity for it in in real life.
3: It's the acknowledgement of the darkness that all comedians have, and that many audiences share and appreciate when they partake in dark comedy like Anthony Jeselnik, for example.
2: All right. We have to stop there, but uh, it has been my great pleasure. Scott Dickers, you're a great uh, conversationalist about this, founding editor of The Onion, author of How to Write Funny and other books about human writing, does teach uh, that as well. Um, Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Colin. Appreciate it. All right. And thanks for listening today. And thanks to, once again, to Jennifer LaRue, uh, who pulled all of this together. And enjoy the rest of your day.